Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey gang, Red Hills Rancher here for your weekly episode of Ranching Reboot. I hope you've been enjoying the bonus content. Today is the first episode of a dairy mini-series. Coming up, we've got several different dairy producers to offer different perspectives on what it's like to make it in the dairy industry in the 2020s. For the first part of this dairy series, we've got Jeff Ramsayer, who works for Organic Valley, a producer cooperative, that uh, aggregates and sells dairy products. So, Jeff, welcome to the show. So, so Jeff, tell us a little bit about Organic Valley, first off. Uh, it's a co-op that actually started with, ooh, I should know exactly how many, but I think it was seven farmers back around 1988, uh, the last big farm crisis before what we're in now. Um, they had basically been kind of shut out of a lot of the markets. They were paying way below what the value was of the milk. Uh, so they decided to do their own. Um, the guy that kind of pushed it was George Seaman. He was actually a dairy farmer and a vegetable producer. Um, so he kind of got it going, and he was actually the CEO up until uh, about two years ago, I believe. Uh, they went from a when they first started there, selling a little bit of cheese up to, uh, I forget what year it was, but we became a, a billion-dollar company selling a billion dollars of product. So he took it the whole way. You must be muted. I am muted. Sometimes I do okay. that. <laughs> I see your mouth moving, but nothing coming out. <laughs> so some, so I'm, I'm familiar with Organic Valley Milk, and I used to be a mm-hmm. consumer of Organic Valley, and I hope you don't. Uh, we found a local producer that we buy, lo- buy raw milk from, but Organic Valley Milk is a great alternative to somebody in a, in a dense urban area where you don't have access to a local mm-hmm. raw dairy, right? Yes. And actually, you know, here... Here in Ohio, raw milk is illegal, so that gets a little tricky. Some states it is legal. Ohio is not one. Here in Kansas, you can sell it on the farm, but you can't really advertise it more than just hanging a sign out front. Okay, it's yeah. Just, just another one of those fun food police rules that we all have to yeah. play by. There's ways to do it in Ohio, too. It's called a herd share, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. she had to get her raw I think handler certificate before she was able to sell it too. So, mm-hmm. so that, yeah, and that's an Idaho. I don't think we really need to get down food police rabbit trails today. No. <laughs> <laughs> so what other products, all right, we're all familiar with the milk. Uh, so what mm-hmm. other products does Organic Valley produce out of the co-op? Well, we also have eggs. Um, we have an egg pool. I only have five here in Ohio, um, but I believe we have around 50 producers across the country. Uh, egg producers, then we also do pork and beef. Uh, We do sell a grass-fed beef product, but it's actually made from one of our co-op members that's in Australia. That meat comes from Australia, but it is a co-op member that provides that. 
Okay. But so are most of your, I mean, obviously your milk producers have to be local because we can't really ship that in from Australia. So as, as part of the co-op, um, how, how traceable are your products? How traceable? Yeah. Hmm. I never had that question asked. Like, can you um, get, can you take a carton of milk and trace that back to the farm? Yes. Uh, you can trace it back to the ship to where it was processed by the number on there. Uh, there's actually a QR code on there on most of them now. Uh, there's also a, a, a plant code that will tell you where it's made. But from that, you'd have to get onto our side of the site to see where that milk actually came from. Our, our company knows where it all comes from. And we have to have at least uh, fairly good traceability because even though we are organic milk, they still have to test us for antibiotics. That's a law, at least in Ohio. I'm pretty sure it's across the country. Um, so we have to have owner sample. When the, when the milkman comes, he picks a sample up of the milk, and that sample has to stay for X amount of days so they can retest it if needed for any kind of issue. So we could trace it back to those samples, which would go to a load sample, which would go to the plant then from there. Okay. You know, I, you know, on this podcast, we talk all about regenerative agriculture and shaking the hand that feeds you. And we realize that that's not possible for everybody. I mean, you take an urban dweller in, in a major urban center like Chicago or New York City um, or L.A., you know, th- this is a way to get you know, some really good products and good nutrition back into those areas, right? Correct. Yes, unfortunately, we don't have a whole lot of what we call local product. We do have some that's actually bottled in, like the Wisconsin bottling is done on a Wisconsin box. You know, it's in cartons. It's not actually in bottles. It's cardboard cartons. Um, but here in Ohio, we don't have that processing. So basically, some of that milk would actually come from out of the area, and then our milk goes to other areas. So it's not necessarily, we try to keep that, you know, the carbon footprint down, but this doesn't seem to be that way because we don't invest in a lot of brick and mortar. Uh, so we don't own a lot of plants. So we basically, they call it co-packing. We pay them to pack for us. Okay. So it's a little screwy because of all the rules. So it's a little tough. How long have you been there at Organic Valley? I've been here since uh, September of 2015. So it'll be six years in September. Uh, seven year, about seven and a half years before that, I worked for a company called National Farmers Organization. And I took care of uh, dairy farmers' quality, you know, for their milk. So we would get lists, printouts with people that had issues, and I'd go out and, you know, help them with those issues. Is what I did before this. So you brought a lot of quality control background and, and a lot of knowledge about how to make milk better from a forage and a nutrition standpoint then? Yes. Yeah, that's what I did before was the, it was a lot more about, it was actually a lot more about the equipment side. You know, if your equipment gets dirty, then you're going to get bacteria, you're going to get problems. Um, but, you know, on my, our, on our own farms and stuff, I learned the nutrition side of it, you know, coming in from that, but not so much with NFO. That was not what I did there. So like I was saying, you know, on the, on this podcast, we like to talk about regenerative agriculture and shaking the hand that feeds you. So how, how does that play in with Organic Valley's mission? Good question. I can, sk- way, I can skip we it. We can edit that out later if you don't Yeah, I'm not sure exactly how to answer that one. <laughs> Sorry. Because, unfortunately, we just don't. We can't. We can't have every farmer come into the, to the customer. That's just... 
we'd love it that way, but it's just not that way. Well, but that's why we have an, that's why there's mm-hmm. going to be a need in the food space for co-ops like Organic Valley that, mm-hmm. you know, can go out to the rural areas, aggregate product and have a, a, a lightweight enough, a low carbon distribution chain to get product into some of these denser urban areas mm-hmm. that, you know, that Bob, Bob and Joe's raw milk, down the street that they can't, you know, they can't necessarily penetrate that yeah, market. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. We're more on a, you know, on a nationwide scale. Uh, so we don't have that direct farmer to, um, you know, farmer to consumer connection. Like when we sell our beef or whatever, like, yeah. That yeah. What do you think the, the furthest, like the different regional dairies, they travel, like it's somewhat localized though from that. Don't you think or no? Some, somewhat. Yes. Um, we actually have, our distribution centers in Cashton, Wisconsin, which is just north, uh, about 15 miles north of 15, 20 miles north of Lafarge, which is like the middle of nowhere, a tiny, tiny town. Um, there's just a big, we call it a people warehouse. It's our headquarters uh, there at Lafarge, and they had a few small buildings. But the uh, at Cashton, it's a big distribution center, and I forget, I've been in there several times, but it's six, seven pallets high and it's all electronic you know computerized a little robot goes around and picks everything um so we're not a real big fan of how much trucking we do back and forth because like the eggs that are produced here they actually get uh, packaged about 20 minutes west of here and then put onto a frozen you know onto a cooler truck and then they're sent up there and distributed from there so to me that's a lot of carbon back and forth um, according to their models, it's less. I'm not sure exactly how that works. But. Efficiencies of transportation. I, I'm That's told. True. I, it, I think it was a, a week or two ago when I was talking to my friend Mike Calicrate, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know if this made it on the episode or not, but we were talking about yeah, the shipping this. cost yeah. from Australia, and he said it's only seven cents a pound to ship yeah. from Australia on a boat. I, I, I thought it'd be way more than that. That's why we don't have a domestic grass-fed beef. I've been pushing for that, you know, that we could do that. Um, but we can get that delivered. Oh, I forget what. It's really low. Uh, it's less than what we would ever wholesale for here, delivered to Minnesota, frozen. I, it's I, insane. I mean, I, I don't want to talk bad about your business, but I think it is insane that mm-hmm. that we can't sell our grass-fed product in this country because there's no mass marketing channel. The marketing yeah. channels we have are for all, you know, are all geared for CAFO animals. Mm-hmm. And the grass-fed meat that's in the stores is all imported from Australia and New Zealand. And now that I understand it's only $0.07 cents a pound. That's why. It, you know, still, it, it it's really hard to see how that's benefiting anybody. Just the middleman. Just the middleman. Just the middleman mm-hmm. and just the packer, right? Yep. I don't. We don't want to go down that rabbit trail today. I've, <laughs> I've that spent was Mike's a, episode. <laughs> yeah, I've oh, I've spent enough time, enough time hearing about the Packers and tweeting about the mm-hmm. Packers for a while. So we'll just we'll ignore them for a while. So, what other what other types of products besides dairy? I mean, you said you have eggs, butter, mm-hmm. milk, cheese, cream. Um, oh, you name it. Yeah, if it if somebody wants it, we'll usually we'll usually produce it. They have. Oh, they have flavored creamers. They have all kinds of stuff like that. 
Plus, we also do, you know, like I said, we do eggs. We have a pork pro, pork pool, so we have uh, all kinds of different pork products and beef. Yeah, just. And you work with quite a few different producers, you know, throughout the course mm-hmm. of your work. So one of the things that's really on my mind, I've, I've really tried to work hard the last couple of weeks to wrap my head around, is what does a regenerative dairy look like that that maintains milk production through the year? We actually, we're, you know, of course, all of us are, all of ours are organic, but we have some that are, we actually have some we call grass milk. So they do not plant any, you know, they don't feed any grain. That's, in my opinion, that's probably the closest as far as regenerative that we've got. Um, we've got, well, I actually have 60-some producers total. Well, no, I have 80 now. Um, producers total, and probably a third of those are grass milk now. And there was at least six of those that were grass milk before we had a bonus for it. Now it's a $5 premium. Uh, those guys had it figured out. They were doing it before it was an extra. The premium is that, you said $5. Is that $5 mm-hmm. per 100 pounds? Per 100, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So milk is generally bought, sold, and traded in 100-pound lots. Correct. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, the other day, it was uh, it was Monday evening, I stopped by, uh, stopped by a dairy that we buy from, and he's a raw grass dairy um and he's i got a chance to walk out to his fields and got to see his forages and he's you know on daily moves and he's got lanes and we were talking about how to minimize some of the trailing back and forth to lanes like well you know i think that just might be a sacrifice you have to make because you have to come in and out twice a day out of your barn Mm -hmm. because your cows like to lay down the barn um he was he was showing me this uh I forget what he called it, but it was an old-style milking barn where they'd come in and stand up on a concrete deal, then he could come in and milk them. And he said mm-hmm. that's what K-State told him to build like 30 years ago, and he built it, and yep. you know, and it was concrete. And he said that all the research said that you know it's it's got to be a concrete floor. You got to wash it twice a day. Now he doesn't even wash it out. And he says when it gets a little dirty, he just brings in some more wood chips and some more hay. And when it gets too deep, he just scoops it out, puts it on his compost pile. And the cool thing that he that he started to do with his compost, uh, I mean, he obviously hauls that back out in his fields. But for his winter protein, he doesn't buy in any inputs. For his winter protein, he gets uh, barley, rye, and wheat, and he sprouts them in this little room. And he's got mm-hmm. a continuous process to sprout grain, and he it, and it's in like an aquaponics type type system. So when it gets, you know, three, four inches tall, root and all, it goes right into the mixer with the dry ration that he saved all saved from the growing season. That's what he feeds his cows all winter. That just mm-hmm. blew my mind. They, yeah, they call that a fodder system. We did, yes. I've done that before. They're so cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was really hot a few years ago, and it's kind of gone away here. So, okay, and, if it's gone away there, what are guys, uh, what if what if some of your mean, producers move to for winter protein? Um. Winter, basically what most of my guys, on, especially on the grass side, they're taking sorghum sedan or sorghum sedan mix and using that through the winter baleage. Um, some guys, we have very little alfalfa here, uh, but a lot of clover. So a clover, um, clover, oats, peas, anything like that, you know, harvested in the spring is some pretty good feed to go through the winter. And we do have some guys that they uh, are seasonal, so they'll freshen in the fall. 
and then they're just milking through the winter. So it's it kind of depends on the grass side. Of, you know, this from grass-fed beef, it's the same thing. It's all about energy, at least here. Uh, protein, you can get all the protein you ever want from anything here, um, but protein can be too much, and that's usually the issue. If you don't have enough energy, of course, you're burning energy to get rid of that protein, but uh, right, mostly yeah. baleage through the winter here. The protein, the energy, and the dry, they all have to be mm-hmm. balanced through the year. Yeah. So I'm interested a little bit more about Jeff, about your history, and how, how did you get kicked off down to this organic and regenerative trail? Um, it actually started right soon after I started with NFO. At that time, I think I had 35 or 40 um, producers. And that would have been 2008, right when that big um, kind of downturn happened. Uh, after that downturn went away, I guess you'd say, say 2000, mid 2009, we started to have what's called the gold, what we call the gold rush in the, United, in the organic systems, I guess where they wanted way more milk than we could ever provide. So basically I went from say 35, 38 producers to 165, 170 in, in that seven year time, actually probably six year time. And most of it was organic Valley producers and also horizon, which is, you know, our direct competitor now. Um, But I just, it just made sense to me. I grew up on a, on a confinement hog barn, Hog, hog facility. Not a big fan of that. Uh, my brother runs that now, but I was always at the dairy farm at my uncle's dairy farm because I like to be outside. Um, and it just made sense to me. You know, the, the land works with you and you don't fight nature and off you go. It makes sense. Definitely. One of the things that, that my friend that runs the dairy I stopped at a few days ago was saying is, you know, we like to talk about the meat. You know, we like to talk about the meat and building food hubs around meat. And his mm-hmm. argument, he made a really strong argument for building the food hubs around dairy. Mm-hmm. And I, I can definitely see that because, you know, dairy is a steady supply. You know, it's it's pretty steady. Yeah, same with eggs. Dairy and eggs, I think, would go together pretty well. Uh, he, I forget how many chickens he had, but we saw both of his chicken tractors and they were, mm-hmm. he had a lot of chickens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we have a lot of guys running their uh, running layers behind their uh, dairy cows, and that helps. With, you know, it's another one of those synergy things that's taking care of flies for them too at the same time, and producing some really good eggs for not a whole lot of money, and doing a lot of great uh, yes. biological cycling in the soil, and mm-hmm. you know, some light tillage, and pest control. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his store. Oh, I don't know if I've seen that much cheese outside of a cheese truck. <laughs> it's just racks and racks of cheese. Yeah. But he has uh, the community they're in. They've been doing this for a while and other people have started growing food and bringing it in and selling it in their store. And I hope next week, I hope the next episode will be with this gentleman. Don't want to spoil mm-hmm. the name yet, but I'm hoping we can do two uh, two dairy episodes here back to back. Okay. Uh, yeah, cool. He had uh, Monday. <laughs> I had to pick up an order from there. You know, some milk, some cream, but we also got carrots and celery um, and some lettuce and some bread and a few other things. And I got home and my lady she whipped up a real nice soup for me that uh, you know normally you can eat a full bowl of soup, but when it's <laughs> good. 
you know, really good stuff with a lot of nutrient dense, bioavailable, good healthy food. Seemed like I only ate about half of it. Yep. So, what are what are some of the different types of dairy management, and how important is mental health to a dairyman? Um, different types of dairy management. Uh, ours, of course, has to be pasture based. But on the conventional side, there's a lot of different ways. You know, with some pasture. We have, when I was with NFO, we had guys that would would pasture uh, fairly intensively. Then we had guys that would have a pasture where they, it was just an exercise lot, you know, getting outside. Um, we had guys that would be uh, what we call tie stalls, so the cows would stay in all the time and be tied. Um, that's something that most everybody's getting away from because of labor. You have to bring everything directly to that cow. Uh, I still do have a few farms over um, in the Mennonite area here close that are still tie stalls. Um, but as soon as the kids get too old, uh, they tend to build a parlor mainly because it's just too labor intensive, you know, as well, I'm almost 50. So I know what that's like, but when you're shoveling silage all day long, it's, it's no fun. And then you get a, if most of them have, would have gutter cleaners, but some of my Amish guys do not. So then you get to shovel that shovel, this stuff you got to take out too. So you're shoveling it in and shoveling it out and it, it weighs on you pretty hard. It's a lot of work. Takes a lot of energy to move that, you know, that all that biomass in, then move all that biomass yes. back out. Mm-hmm. And, and that's I, why the when management intensive grazing came around here, it caught on like wildfire because everybody had a tie stall barn. Like, you mean we could put the cows out and we don't have to carry them feed and haul them in work? Wow, <laughs> who would have thought of that? You know? What a crazy system. Cows yeah. cows can walk. <laughs> yeah. No, their their theory was that beef cows do that, not dairy cows. You know, dairy cows have to be right there. You have to feed them every single stitch of food. And there's still a few farms that are like that, but they're mostly big farms that can, you know, afford to do that. So how much does milk production generally suffer going from, going from like your typical Holstein dairy that's on Mm -hmm. full feed, full high energy feed, you know, high energy corn silage ration all year. What's, what's the milk production difference look like there? Um, we've got guys in our area that are easily averaging 80 to 85 pounds or even over a hundred pounds per cow per day. Um, which is insane in my opinion. I'd hate to see their cost, but because they're big enough, they, you know, the whole efficiency thing makes it cheap. Um, but on our dairies, I'd say we probably average somewhere in that 35 to 40 pounds here. Uh, we're mostly a, and we've always been that way because the cheese plants, but we're mostly a colored breed, you know, mostly Jersey or Jersey Holstein crosses, because in this area, that's what you get paid for is whole is uh, fat and protein. Um, that's how they figure calculate your um, price per hundred is what, you know, what you have there. Um, now, if it was all fluid milk, then it really doesn't matter what your protein and fat are because they uh, skim it down to 3.25 for whole milk anyway. And those are the guys um, that have the big, 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 huge Holsteins, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, and produce a lot of white water is basically what it comes down to. Yeah, but it's all about fluid. It's not about you know what's actually in it. Um, so I would say our our average farm here is somewhere below forty five pounds. I've got a couple that are in the forty five pound range, but they're extremely intensive on their you know everything. You know they're really on it. And it's not just how many 
And I think what a lot of guys get caught up in is pounds of milk, not mm-hmm. what did you have to spend or what were your inputs to yes, get that exactly. versus what would your inputs be at 20% less production? Mm-hmm. Yes. It's exactly the same on the dairy side as it on is on the beef side. It's just a different parameter. You know, you can have a, you know, a 1700 pound cow that gives you an 800 pound calf, but you know, what's it cost to get that calf to that weight? It's the same exact idea. And ours, our guys are fairly low cost, um, especially in this area. They don't take on a whole lot of debt, or they prefer not to, mostly because they're uh, what we call plain folks. They're, you know, Mennonites, Amish. Uh, I'm probably 95% plain um, with my with my producers here, and then I have some in uh, Somerset, PA, over by Pittsburgh. Um, so that changes, changes it a little bit, but we're probably 90, uh, 85 to 90% jersey or jersey cross cows just because of that yeah that's that's really interesting that's that is really interesting and i'm i'm starting to see that more of the dairies and dairymen that i that i know and i interact with on social media are switching away from those those you know five and a half six foot tall holstings Mm -hmm. that look like skin and bones yep and they're you know moving to jerseys or jersey crosses mm-hmm. or um, or uh, Dutch belted cows, Dutch belties. Yeah. We have a couple guys that had been Dutch belt for quite a while. Dutch belt don't tend to produce very much, so they it makes it hard to pay for farms. You know if you don't have the production, young guys that are buying new farms or dads helping them buy new farms, um, they they need the production to you know to pay bills. So the, the Dutch belts will live forever. I mean, they'll be 25, 30 years old. We've got a guy that has brown Swiss that he would sell us call cows uh, through NFO that were 17 to 25 years old all the time. And you would never guess it. They just live forever, but they're not hyper-duced. They're not pushed. And that's they live forever the, because they're not pushed with a real yeah, exactly. super high-energy diet. Yeah. The, the Holsteins... I forget. I haven't seen what the number lately, but last I heard, their average call age was somewhere between three and four years old. So that means you milked her one time, and maybe a half of a time, and she's gone. So that's tough. Oh, tough but to that one that. time you milked her, she gave a hundred pounds of milk a day, right? Yes, she did. <laughs> <laughs> I, but it takes a long time to pay for that heifer doing that. Yeah. So, do you want to talk at all about Holstein genetics and like how inbred and line bred they all are? I just saw that on there. Uh, <laughs> actually, Holstein and Jerseys are, you know, most of the breeds in general are line bred way back. I, I haven't seen a number lately either on the Holsteins, but um, I want to say, I can't remember the name of that. I think it was Elevation was his name from the mid-80s. And I want to say like 60% of the genome is tied back to him now because it's just, and I don't don't quote me on that name because I can't remember for sure, but they they really concentrate them and and usually it works, I guess. But It'll work till it doesn't, I suppose. I- exactly. And what works, what I would consider working, and what somebody else would consider working are two different things. If you're losing <laughs> cows at four years, it's not working. You know, it's just not. But it seems to you know the whole efficiency thing. You know, it, but they got a hundred pounds of milk out of her every day. Exactly right. <laughs> yeah. But what's that, at what cost? You know that that's what your cost is the getting that cow to you know the heifer to the point where she milks. After that, it's just feed cost. But before that, you're feeding her for you know two years, maybe a touch more depending on what breed or 
how you do your management, but you got all that cost to get back and you can't get that back in one lactation, even on the organic side, it just doesn't work that way. Even though organics double the price, it still just doesn't calculate that way. Interesting. I, I was kind of under the impression that most Holsteins can go, go back to pretty much two bulls back in the fifties or sixties. That wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. I, I just have this feeling that there's impending genetic collapse. Mm-hmm. The, I mean, uh, it can't be more than a couple generations away. If they keep line breeding and inbreeding some of those traits, I think they, they they're going to have, they're going to start having problems soon. And maybe it's already showing itself with, with the cows only lasting three, four years, one or two, maybe mm-hmm. a third production cycle. Yeah. Yeah. It just seems like every once in a while an outcross pops up. Where that outcross comes from never made any sense to me. But that's what they'll do. They'll bring that outcross in, and then he's the new hot one. They'll breed him to him for two, three years, and then, oh, he's not the hot one. We'll use this hot one. And it seems like they're just chasing their tail to get the exact same thing. It's not really gaining much, in my opinion. But if you if you ever watched a dairy show, if, like if you'd ever go to – uh, like we go up to the one in the, the World Dairy Expo in Wisconsin. If you went up there and looked at those cows, half of those cows are so what we would consider frail or thin that they they couldn't function on a normal basis, you know, dealing with other with the herd mates. Like they just couldn't physically keep that up. Uh, but they you know keep them in the say they keep them in a box stall or whatever, carry all their feed to them, and make them look like they do. No even. Now the hot thing is they actually clip their ribs to make them look even more frail. It's insane, but that's what they do. Clip that's the hair to make them look thinner. That's a little crazy, but those aren't your producers, yeah. right? Those yeah, aren't your no, organic no. value producers. Ours are functional cattle. So let's talk about that a little bit, like some of the differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, the main difference is guts, um, both width and depth. You have to have that just like your beef cows. If you don't, if you can't get enough forage in there, she can't produce what you need her to do, you know, to get that energy out. And even on, you know, on our, what we would call well, our non-grass-fed or non-grass milk, uh, organic milk, you still can only feed 30% outside of pasture during the grazing season. 70% of their feed has to come from grazing. So no matter what genetics you're using, you still have to have one that can graze. You can't physically get enough in in that 30% to to make up for a kind of a slab sided cow, you know, that just doesn't have the width, doesn't have the, uh, it's just like beef cows, uh, big muzzle, uh, good appetite and you know, good feet to get out there and do it and walk back. A cow with a two and a half inch wide mouth is going to have a harder time getting her guts full than a yes. cow with a six inch wide mouth. Unless you weigh 700 pounds <laughs> and it wouldn't matter much. Yeah. Hey, quit talking about my coriandes like that. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. It, it's all relative. <laughs> two and a half inch, on a 700-pound compared to a 1,200-pound would not work. Right. Well, I, I, that's one of the things that I look for phenotypically is is width of the mouth in relation to the width of the hips. Mm-hmm. You, know, you want that mouth to be as wide as possible in relation to the hips. I mean, she's got big old wide hips and a tiny little mouth. She needs to go on the bus and find another place to get a job. Yeah. Well, more than likely, she'll not get bread. Yeah, that, that's, not that explains why I have some of my donuts this year. <laughs> so 
What are some of the biggest challenges facing the dairy industry right now from your point of view? Dairy industry in general, um, a lot of it has to do with pricing. Um, the, the farmer keeps getting less and less of the total milk dollar every year. Um, it just seems to be the way it is. Uh, we're, I'm not sure what the uh, conventional price is right now. Last I heard, uh, my cousin milks conventional, and he ships to a cheese plant, so he has a good market. But I think they're, they're around 18 to $20, somewhere in that range per hundred, um, where most places their cost of production is 16 to $18. So um, that's why they have to produce 100 pounds Hundred pounds of milk to even, you know, get ahead of what they what they're getting paid for it. So that's where the, the efficiency part comes in, I guess. Oh, I I feel like I'd rather get thirty bucks a pound or get you know thirty dollars a hundred for mm-hmm. a, you know a bunch of cows that are only going to produce thirty five pounds a day. Makes sense. That are going to live for twelve years <laughs> rather than a cow that's going to make me a hundred pounds of milk. Mm-hmm. on two cycles two. and then and yeah. then be done mm-hmm. uh, and, and that two dollar a hundred weight margin that's that's awful thin yes, so it is what what are some ways that we can start getting more of that consumer food dollar back to the producer in the dairy sphere Ooh, it gets a little tricky because it's not like selling meat where you can just it's at least in ohio you can't just say, okay, I'm going to go direct to consumer. Um, that's, you know, that's really the simplest way on the beef side is to do that. But um, on the dairy side, it gets really tricky. You could start your own co-op. You could bring up your own, start up your own creamery. Um, we actually have one about 15 minutes from here that they started that two or three years ago. There was one maybe, oh, that had been probably five, six years ago, north of us that started one. They're close to Cleveland. Um, so they're selling most of theirs direct to consumer. So that does help. But then, um, and you talked about mental health earlier, a dairy farmer is, in my opinion, is way worse um, than say a livestock farmer. Um, Dairy farmers have so many balls in the air that it's hard to keep everything going straight. And then you throw in, okay, let's make, you know, make our own products. And then you got it. Then you become a, you know, a plant manager on top of that. And it's, it's tough. I don't know how those guys do it. Dairymen, in my mind, are already the hardest working guys mm-hmm. in 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 the ag sector. Period. Yes, I, uh, I have getting paid the least. <laughs> I I have a lot of respect for all the dairymen, and mm-hmm. I, I try to appreciate every glass of milk or every piece of cheese that I drink because yeah. I know how hard some of these guys work on such razor thin margins to put that product on my table and mm-hmm. on the shelf. Ah, uh, I had somewhere. I had somewhere I was going with that, and I forgot. Okay. As far as getting more back to the uh, to the farmer, that's going to come down to changes in the laws, uh, changes in, they call them federal milk orders. So basically, we're in a different milk order here than, say, you guys would be out there. That's all controlled by the government. Um, and then it's called pooling, and it gets very complicated. Uh, when I started with NFO, I was probably there six months. And my boss had been in the dairy industry for 30 plus years. And we were, I had farmers in, West, in Western Pennsylvania, which is two and a half hours. And he was riding over there with me. And I said, okay, we have a two and a half hour drive. Can you explain to me how we price milk? And he said, I need a lot more time than that. I said, right there is a big problem. This should be simple. With all of our electronics, we should be able to say, okay, we 
made that we sold this many products. We took in this much milk over the whole country. I mean, they do that stuff all the time with everything else. Why can't we do that with milk? But according to the, to the law, that doesn't matter. It's based on all these other pricing, in my opinion, schemes that make it tough to basically get a real, well, it's a little bit like the, the beef as far as price discovery. You know, it's, it's all crazy. Well, a lot of our problem in the beef industry with with lack of price discovery is, you know, formulas and grids and, mm-hmm. you know, forward contracting and, and the packers being able to take and purchase cattle outside the cash market. And they say, oh, the value is tied to the cash market. Well, there's almost nothing that moves on the cash market, at least exactly. fat cattle or slaughter-ready cattle. So mm-hmm. it's like they're basing their grid and formula numbers on numbers that that don't even really exist in reality. But. Yes. And that actually happens some on the, the dairy side too, because it's based on, and I'm going to get all these mixed up, but it's M and W. So I think it's like Minnesota and Wisconsin actual cash. I guess you'd call them cash dairy sales. Well, there's none of those either. So it's, you know, what's the cheese worth a pound? Well, we'll just sell some and say, that's what it's worth. Well, unfortunately it's just like going, having one buyer at a sale barn. What's it going to bring? Whatever he decides. And that's, that's basically what it comes down to. Whatever the, the middlemen of the dairy industry decide, as far as conventional, organic is completely different, but conventional is really, really controlled by all that. And I, I think that's where all the, um, you know, the mental health issues and the, just the stress, because they don't know month to month what they're going to be paid. It's kind of whatever they feel like paying them. And how do you base a business on no clue what you're going to get paid? <laughs> It's hard to do. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't want to do it. Yeah. So like circling back on this mental health thing, mm-hmm. there's a little anecdote that I've heard several times about, um, there's a couple man and wife and they had a small dairy together and they started having some relationship problems and they decided they were going to get a divorce. So they decided they're going to split the milking chores. One of them would milk in the morning, the other one would milk in the evening. And they went in and, you know, they were still running dairy together, but on on a different schedule so they didn't have to interact. And over about two weeks, their milk quality just cratered. Still getting plenty of volume, but the quality cratered and it got to the point after after a month, they couldn't sell anything. They brought in consultants. They brought in nutritionists. Nobody could figure it out. Then they went to a psychologist and a psychologist said, you will never sell your dairy. You will never fix your problem until you both get out of that milking barn. So they hired somebody to come in and milk their cows. And guess what happened within a week? Their quality came back up and they Mm -hmm. had sellable product again. And the dairy started to get profitable again. So I think there's something there about how, how the dairyman's attitude affects the cows mm-hmm. is does that jive with any of your experience? Oh, absolutely. There's no question that it does. Um, I've had some issues with conventional dairies before where, you know, same kind of deal that it's just stress. You stress and stress and stress about, you know, can I make the payments this month? Can I do this? Can I do that? And it's almost when I, like when I drive onto the farm, I could feel it like a, a bad energy and I'm not really that, type of guy that can feel that but you could feel it on some of those farms because say the the wife would and this is usually typical the wife would take care of the calves 
the calves would start slipping a little bit because she's mad at him. And then the cows would start slipping because she, he's mad at her. And next thing you know, they have to sell because there's just nowhere. If you can't work together, it's just not going to work or one leaves, you know, that's the only other option, but then one has to buy the other out. So where's that come from? <laughs> oh, we'll just go get a loan and pay 4% yeah, exactly. on that. Right. Another one. Yep. Sure. Yeah. We got just, equity. Yeah. Yeah. We got equity. We'll just go pay 4% four, four to the bank to buy it back. Yep. Makes sense. So, um, so if somebody was out there right now, let's just say our hypothetical listener is sitting in Chicago, downtown in a filing cabinet, and they want to get in, they want to get in on this dairy thing. How would, how would you tell somebody to start a dairy right now? Wow. Um, as far as dairy in, in general, I would go for something that's not cows. You know, the sheep dairy seems to be really exploding. Goats seem to be exploding here. Uh, but as far as, as milking cows, it's it's so capital intensive to do it. Um, you know, the conventional way with big free stalls, big everything. Um, if you're in a state where you can sell direct, then you could, you know, then you have options. Uh, but in a state like ours where you can't, well, legally you can't sell raw, um, it just locks you down to you have to do what everybody else is doing. And that just isn't going to ever, well, in my opinion, it's not going to fly. Um, unless you have a huge stack of money, you're going to live off for, well, until you quit milking. How do you make a million dollars in the dairy industry? Start with <laughs> Start three, with right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, what are, what are some, what motivates you to get out of bed right now, Jeff? Well, for us, it's our new farm. We took on a lease farm that we get a long-term lease on. Um, so that's what gets me to, you know, gets me out of bed. What gets me to work is trying to help these farmers. You know, it's a full-time job for me, but um, I almost have a full-time job at our farm too. So it's some time management stuff, but um, just helping these farmers do what, you know, do what they need, you know, what they need help with and getting them better is what we do. We've talked quite a bit about your day job, so let's talk about your farm a little bit. What, okay. What's your plans for your farm? Well, we kind of call it the old McDonald farm because we have a little bit of everything. Um, we got hair sheep. We had some goats, sold those last week. Um, whatever you do, none of her buy show goats to try to put them out on a pasture. It doesn't work so well. Um, it was just a flop, but the price is so high that we still got our money back from when we bought them last year. Um, just a just a mess. They we brought, we started leasing the farm officially in January. There's 70 acres there. And so there's a little bit of stockpile on the one side. So we took the sheep over there and the goats were with the sheep. And then we moved them, I don't know, maybe last week of December. We had an abnormal winter for us. So it's actually frozen. We usually have mud all winter. Uh, so probably by, well, by Christmas, we were froze up and had, you know, six to eight inches of snow on the ground. Well, the sheep could care less. They're grazing right under the snow, just going to town. The goats, I find them the next morning, curled up in a corner crying because nobody was feeding them. So then we knew we had an issue. So we actually brought them back to our house. We have a little shed we could keep them in here. But um, we actually have, well, we have beef cows there. Uh, we started a new thing for us uh, this year was um, bringing in grass-fed stalkers uh, to get paid on the game. Uh, we've got 19 right now. We're probably going to get about 60 more between a couple of different farms. Um, I think that's a good cash flow for us, uh, cash flow thing for us. 
um, but it's new. You know, we don't really know exactly. Uh, but this farm has been in the in the family, uh, I forget how many generations, but since 1915. Uh, but the last several years, it was kind of um, let run down a little bit. They they leased out the grazing, they leased out the, the crop fields, and um, just stuff wasn't put back. You know, you just take, take, take. It doesn't work out so well. So uh, we're it's a lot of work, but if we can actually see stuff turning around already, you know, just from the cattle being there, from the sheep being there, uh, and we sold sheep last last week for the highest we've ever sold at two seventy five a pound. So, I mean, that's pretty good. We just need more sheep. You know, twenty ewes isn't a whole lot of cash, but they can do it. But when you have over a hundred percent weaning rate and you're selling mm-hmm. for that much, yep, kind of makes a guy want to go buy some sheep. Yeah, when we pay two seventy five for the mother and you get one hundred eighty eight for the baby, that's not too bad. And she has two or one and. We're about 165 percent, 175 percent this year, so it's that's pretty good. That's that's a nice ratio. Too bad we can't make cows have twins <laughs> twice a year. They have tried. There's actually a guy here in Worcester that has been doing that with the Mark Twinners. I don't know if you heard of that Mark through the uh, what is it, the Meat Animal Research Center. There's a there's a breed called Mark Twinners, and he has them. Um, I don't know much about him, but that's what he does. They have twins every year. Interesting. I have a I have a friend that lives about oh, 40, 50 miles northeast of here, and last year he was kind of bragging because he had seven sets of twins, and I think this year he had like ten or twelve sets of twins out of his oh, cows, my. and and they're mostly straight up black Angus. Mm-hmm. I just that doesn't to, happen very often. No, no, it's maybe I ought to go buy a couple of his cows and <laughs> and get some of that genetic in my group. You gotta have a cow that can handle twins, though. Too that's where it gets a little tricky. But our, with our sheep, we had well, we have seventeen ewes, and just off the top of my head, we had had three yearlings that had singles, um, and then we had uh, four that had triplets. So that really jacks up your. And they raised them all on their on themselves. So um, that's pretty profitable, actually. I think we've heard that quite a bit. That you know, sheep and goats are can be significantly more profitable than cows mm-hmm. in the right environment. Yeah. You know, and I, I think that's one of the things that, that a young producer definitely needs to look at is you know, when you put some of the romanticism mm-hmm. aside for a few minutes and say, what makes the most economic sense to get started? And it's not going and buying a big ranch and a bunch of big horse trailers and horses to run cows. Maybe it's running sheep in a shoebox in somebody's backyard. Yeah. Yeah, we've... That's one thing I've been talking with my farmers a lot is, uh, especially the Amish, they try to get their kids involved early, you know, young. Um, and like we have hair sheep, so we don't have to worry about the wool. Um, so I've told a lot of them that, you know, just get a few few hair sheep. Your kids can handle them. Um, like our, you know, they're not big. Like ours are 125, 130 pounds. Even the buck might weigh 160 pounds. So it's not like you're dealing with, a, you know, an 800-pound Holstein heifer or something like that. And it's very profitable and, and easy to get started because, you know, you used to be able to get used for, say, $200. Now you're pushing it to get for $325, $350 um, just because they're worth so much as babies. I mean, these, we took in 14, they average 65 pounds when normally in a normal market, your highest um, value per pound is at 40 to 60 pounds. That's the ethnic market. Um, and they want them pig fat, like they, they want chunky little boogers. 
Well, now, because the way everything is, there's no price, um, what would you call it, on the beef industry, be like rollback or whatever, because you go from a 600-pound to an 800-pound. In, in the sheep industry right now, or here anyway, and we have a big auction market here about 15, 20 miles from us, Mount Hope, there's no rollback. So I figured, why, why should I sell them at 60? I'll just take them up to try to hit 70, and it didn't make a difference. So here's a get 275 a pound for 65 pounders, and um, say three months ago, that would have been a $2 per pound size. So, you know, you just kind of have to watch some of that too. But with the kids, I think it'd be perfect for something like that. There's very basically on the hair sheep, there's, if, if you are diligent, there's no care. You know, you don't have, you shouldn't have to trim feet. You shouldn't have, well, there's no wool, so you don't need to mess with that. Um, you put the buck out, you pull the buck, um, you weigh the lambs, you sell the lambs, and we don't sell our ewes. Just like with our cows, we expose them all. We so expose all the ewe lambs. They stick, they stick. If they don't, they go to Mount Hope. I mean, it's exactly the way we run our, our heifers, too. Everybody gets exposed, and nature sorts out who's going to stay. So it works. It works really well. I like to say fertility drives the bus, but it just maybe kind of occurred to me that lack of fertility drives the Jesus bus. Yeah. crashes the bus yeah. <laughs> drives the drives the livestock trailer how about that yeah there you go so you mentioned you had hair sheep um mm-hmm. is there any sort of wool market there in ohio at all there is uh there's actually a big co-op in southern ohio that's been around for hundreds of years uh but to get when i let's see when would that have been when i had sheep before when i started with sheep it was probably uh 99 somewhere in that range, and I had, I just got sheep from wherever I could find them just to try it, and those actually cost me to have somebody come shear them, so they would come and shear them, you paid 10 bucks a piece, and they took all the wool, so that never really made any sense to me. Um, now, if you get into the fine wools, like the merinos and you know, some of that kind of stuff, um, out west, the rambolet, you know, the targi, that kind of, that type, um, they say those have value as far as wool value, um, around here, what seems to have the value is for hand spinners. They like the long hair. I don't even know what they call them. It's almost like a, um, a carpet type or something. It's just a long, fuzzy kind of wool, more than a fine wool that you'd make you know, clothing out of. Um, and then they just weave them into all kinds of stuff. But I just never really was a big fan. Um, and it was really hard to get shearers because... Nobody wanted to do a, a business that wasn't making any money. So it, that can be tough too if you don't have um, don't have that infrastructure. Um, like out west, from what I've heard from everywhere else, it's not near as hard to get that kind of stuff because they have custom companies come in and shear. Those don't exist here. You know, you'll have a guy, you know, running out of his pickup. You know, and he'll get there when he gets there. That <laughs> makes it a lot tough, a lot tougher. Call Bob from down the road, and he'll bring his good scissors, right? Yeah. <laughs> Well, they usually have good equipment, but one of those guys compared to a, one of those custom, you know, deals where they come in with eight or 10 guys and they can go through a sheep in you know, 45 seconds or whatever they do now, um, that's a huge difference. But you're talking tens of thousands of sheep out there. And that's not here. You know, I don't know of any big blocks here yet. We'll get there one day, won't we? Actually, Ohio was one of the largest ones uh, until kind of the West opened. You know, there's a lot of a lot of sheep here at that time. 
So what? Uh, so what's what's the best advice you wish you had on your first day in the dairy industry? Hmm. I think it's something that I, it took a while to get through my head, but don't take it personally because there's stuff that you just have to work through. And if you took it personal the whole time, you'd be banging your head against the wall every day. Um, that was, and it's the same thing for, you know, our farm too, you know, kind of just relax and work through it rather than getting upset and throwing stuff and screaming and hollering. And cause I have done that. I think everybody has, but we had one bad incident with my wife and kids and I ended up nutting, uh, 35 of the 60 steers myself because they all left and went home. <laughs> so that was not a good day for me or them, but we didn't do that again. So. Got to take care of your health. Yes, exactly. Or do it yourself. And it was no fun doing it myself. No, I don't. I, I'm kind of a one man show, but when I need help, I need help. And I make mm-hmm. sure that they are much appreciated when they show up. Yep. They are now. I was not listening back then, but we didn't have an adjustable alley. So the calves were all turning around, and I was just going nuts trying to push them in. And then they all left, so then I had to push them in and catch them at the same time. So that was real fun. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> Not so much. So um, so where can we find you on social media, and how, how, can we, uh, how can our fans connect with you, and how can our fans find out more about Organic Valley? Sure. Organic Valley has everything they have instagram they have all that just have to search in uh, organic valley um we have our farm is lone pine pastures on facebook um on our list of things to get done as a website we don't have that done yet um you can just look up jeff ramsire on facebook and i believe uh, i need to look because i i got hacked so there's two that are technically mine but i couldn't get back into it i can't remember if it's a boat that's on our online now or not tell you what i'll make sure i look and i get the link to the right your correct profile and i'll put that in the show notes page yeah the picture is uh, us on the on our boat and then the background the background picture is at the farm it says barns in flowers so i'll make sure i get that link yeah so do you have any good cheat codes or hacks that uh shortcuts that help you out every day um i'd say the best cheat codes i've gone to is let nature sort everything out you know rather than me trying to figure out what the best heifer is or what the best you is to keep um expose them all give them the management that you have you know as far as inputs and whoever does good is who you need to keep i don't know a nice way to say that but it's just Almost like you need to be. Uh, Mark Shepard has a has a saying: "Stun, sheer, total, utter neglect." I don't want to go quite that far, but I just don't want to. I want to make my animals work. That's what they're for, rather than me working for them. So that's for us. That's our main thing. Is if you get well, you, of course, you know, you know this too. But timing up your lambing, calving, whatever to the season. So, so everything works. So like through the winter, we can, if we need hay, like this year we did because we didn't have a stockpile, we can get them through hay cheap, you know, and cheap hay because they're a long ways from calving or lambing. Um, so you can 
cheap them through the winter. And then when grass comes, they got another month before the calve and it just works. I mean, it's worked for deer forever. Why would it be any different for a, for a cow or lamb or whatever? But I just here, especially because of Ohio, Ohio is a, a show cattle state. So everybody's got eight, 10. I think our average now is 13 uh, for the state as far as beef herd size. Um, and what always cracked me up is they have 13, you know, the average has 13. They probably have a dually. They have a 30 foot stock trailer to get every cow they own on. Um, they have a $6,000 chute. They have a handling. I mean, all that stuff that we didn't have when we had 150 cows, but, um, it's just different. You know, we we're just completely opposite. We're the oddballs. I think some people want to be in it as a hobby and have mm-hmm. some of the lifestyle and they have a town job to support it. And, yep. you know, there's some people that all they want to do is all they want to do is livestock and in exchange for being able to live that life and, you know, 30 year old pickup and old broke down rusty two horse trailer. <laughs> and they're just happy as hell every day. Sounds like our truck to 99 with 326,000 miles on it. Yep. Well, it's just broke in, isn't it? Uh, the engine runs great. Everything else is falling apart. Yeah. I tell everybody it gets lighter every time I drive it because pieces fall off. Must be a Dodge then, right? Nope, it's a Ford. <laughs> Used to be a Dodge guy until I got that truck. I love that truck. It just gets up and goes every day. So, well, when we need it, we don't need it that often. So We just have a 16-foot trailer, and all that stuff works for us. If I need bigger stuff hauled, I hire it done. So. It makes a lot of sense if... You know, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me to have, you know, a 28 or 30 foot stock trailer when I need it twice a year. So exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. I've got buddies that I have friends that own them that I can go beg, borrow Mm -hmm. or steal from, you know, and it helps to have a list because not everybody will always let you borrow a trailer. But uh, yeah, I just ran through that when we got those 19 head, we had drop them. Uh, Another guy, friend of ours, took 60 head of that load and I got we got the, the rest of them. And uh, I couldn't get, you know, in a 16-foot trailer, I couldn't get them all in. So I called a buddy and called another buddy, but they were all, of course, planting corn or planting beans. So I just hauled two loads. You know, big deal. It took a little extra time. But uh, you can't always just have everything. You have to kind of limit that stuff. So what's Jeff's number one tip to make the world a better place? Eliminate subsidies. Well, that was easy. <laughs> yep, it is. Just think about how our world would change. Us, especially trying to get more land, it open everything up. Hands, right? What was that, CK? I feel like that's cutting out the middleman. Yep. We can't compete with what they can, what they get paid. I mean, we can't compete to grace that land. You know, put fence on and do all that uh, when they're paying. $200 for land that we can only pay, afford to pay a hundred. And then, you know, of course we can look at the high cost of labor and that's mm-hmm. only going up and it doesn't seem like anybody wants to pay more at the grocery store for meat, milk, butter, and eggs. But we can eliminate a lot of that labor by letting nature do stuff, you know, and, and moving your cows doesn't take a whole lot of labor. I hear people just laughing at me all the time. Well, you move your cows. At that time, we moved them twice a day. We don't do that anymore, usually once a day. But, well, how's you know how do you do that? But I see them hauling hay out to them every day. How long does that take? And how much diesel fuel does that take? That's labor to me because that's not something I like to do. I like to open up the fence and watch the cows go through. 
and set up another fence. Doesn't take long at all, but everybody's different. You know, I I would definitely agree with that. I mean, I spend I spend several hours a day out with my cows every day. Mm-hmm. You know, getting ahead, running fences ahead, moving the mineral. That doesn't take any time. No. You know, I have time for things that I enjoy. I can go out and I can just drive through or walk through my cows every day and be able to spend a couple hours with them and get right down there personal with them and watch what they're eating and watch and just watch them for a couple mm-hmm. hours and see how they're moving through the pasture and how they're using the forage. And, oh, man, I'm glad I don't have to jump in that feed truck and go haul six more bales over here then go get my corn planter ready. And then, you know, as soon as the corn's in the dirt, Got to get the camper and a boat ready to go to the lake. Yeah. <laughs> I just like going out and messing with my cows every day. Mm-hmm. No, and I'll, I'll say this, and I haven't said this on air yet. Last year, I kind of got away from that too much. I got away from spending time with my cows every day, and my mental health suffered. Mm-hmm. And and this year, now that I'm back to back into the habit of spending several mornings a week out with my cows for a couple hours. I feel a lot better. I think, I think there's a lot of us that were just built to be with livestock. Mm-hmm. Oh, I agree. Yeah, yeah. We were custom grazing for a guy that had uh, for twelve cows, something like that. Well, actually, it was eleven and a horse. Um, not a big fan of horses. Never been a horse guy. Um, so I was not unhappy when that horse left with the rest. But that was his thing. He was actually going through a big custody battle with his daughter, who was only like four or five years old, and he said. Him, come, him leaving work and coming out and just watching his cows at our place was way better than any therapy he could ever go to. And that's what he did. When he had time, he'd just come out and watch the cows. You know? So let's talk about, let's circle around and talk about some of your failures. Because I like to describe a fail as first attempt in learning. Mm-hmm. So what are, what are some of your fails and what have they taught you? There's been plenty. Um, we had a livestock partnership we got into um which ended up being a big fail we that was the first time that we really had we didn't have land like we don't have family land to go to or anything like that so we had we'd been looking for somewhere to to do something cows you know whatever and uh, we ended up getting hooked up with the local organic grain farmer um and we started a partnership and the partnership never really got off the ground we wanted to control the money and whatever but we, well, like I had been watching Gabe Brown YouTube videos for four years before we got that place. So I had, I had it figured out in my head how to do it. I had nowhere to do it. So we did learn from that, that our management works, our management style works. Just the person we tried to do that with did not work. So now we've basically learned from that too, that we never want to be in a partnership again. Um, something about controlling everything that happens just makes complete sense. And understand why we did it, and I know we would probably, you know, same situation. We'd probably try it again, you know, back then, but um, it just didn't work for us. Um, Actually, you know, we were just talking about Bob Kimford. That was a failure for us, and I think it was because it was so wet. Like we had so much moisture here, Um, the I could get the cows to graze exactly like he said, but we could never get them to to work the grass. I guess you'd say fast enough to move to the next place. So we were actually getting, um, what would you, we were like undergrazing one paddock while the next one's blowing up and it, it, we could just never get it to, to work for us. Um, I mean, from that, we learned that we, 
kind of have to do, you call it recreational fencing. Um, but for us that, that works too. Um, he complained about it a lot. I was like, well, you're not doing it. It's not like it's, you know, four hours a day. We're moving to, well, see at that time we had had say 250, 260 head total with calves and everything. Cause we had finishers, um, on the part in the partnership and we could move them all and we're moving twice a day. I could move them all in an hour and 15 minutes, you know, for the whole day. So it, it wasn't a lot of wasted time there, but. And that's including building, the fen- doing all the recreational fencing. Yeah. Yeah. Just doing the fencing is what it took us. Um, but it, I don't know that he'd ever been around this area, like in the East with the moisture we have and the growth that we get compared to out West where I'm the opposite. I know here, but I don't know out there. I, I know how to make it. a lot of stuff work in a dry, sandy, mm-hmm. arid environment, but if I go to Ohio, I probably would have have <laughs> not much of an idea what I was doing or what grasses mm-hmm. I was looking at. Yeah, that brings up a, an interesting story. When we went to the, we drove up, we have shorthorns, and we really like the shorthorns. Um, we have a few registered. Um, Horned cows matter. What's that? Horned cows matter. Yeah. We don't have horns. My wife won't let me use a horn bull. Um so uh, we went out to the National Western in Denver like three years ago, and we drove because we're cheap. So we rented this car, drove it out there, and I'm driving through all these fields. And I'm like, this is insane. I can't see a house. There's no cross-fencing. What is going on here? Huge, huge pastures. Sounds like so Western I, Kansas. Yes, it was Kansas. I mean, just there's nothing, like nothing there but green stuff. But it was like two inches tall, and I just couldn't get grasped that that would be that way. So. I made some call. I actually got on, you know, like land and farm, the real estate thing I was like, Oh, I could buy that for, you know, nothing. But then I found out how many acres it took. So it was actually more expensive there than it was here because we have a lot more production, but it was just one of those linear things too. Um, trying to think of another fail story. That's a, uh, that's the ones that come to my mind right now. Okay. So what's the other side of the corn? Coin, what inspires you to be your best self? Wow, sounds like a therapy session here. <laughs> what inspires me is uh, hmm, just doing what I love to do. I mean, that's that's what gets me going in the morning. And um, with the partnership, we had trouble, I mean, like marital issues with my wife and I because we weren't both involved. Now we are both involved and that really makes day-to-day life a lot, a lot better for us because we both like doing that stuff and uh, that really works for us. Awesome. Even though, she, even though she has a business too, and she's actually stuck in Chicago doing that business, she does uh, puppy transport. So she's waiting on a puppy to come in from the Ukraine that was supposed to be here today and it's not coming till tomorrow. I didn't know that your wife was, was living and working in Chicago. I kind of maybe want to apologize for the dig on, <laughs> the dig no, on she Chicago. She's just out there to pick it up. She lives here. Yeah. Okay. I, that, that makes it a little bit better. At least she's mm-hmm. there with you and not stuck several hours away. Yeah. So, well, Jeff, we're, we're kind of a little short on time today. Um, mm-hmm. Have we left anything on the table? Is there anything you'd like uh, – what, any questions you'd like me or CK to answer for you? Hmm. I just wanted to say that I really liked the episode with CK, seeing all, you know, hearing all that. That was, that was pretty inspiring to me to hear all that. 
but I don't really have any questions that I can think of off the top of my head. Thank you. For our listeners here, we're doing this on a Zoom call, and you should have just seen CK's face light up. (laughs) No, I mean, I was really nervous to do that episode. Mm -hmm. Uh, We talked about it for for several months, actually, and I was like, I know this is what they want, but if I'm going to do it, I'm going to share everything. And it, when it aired, I got some really good messages as well, just like what you're saying. So it kind of was like a sigh of relief to finally get that off my chest. Yeah. For me, it was kind of neat, too, because I had a friend growing up that came from almost the same type of situation. And nowadays, you would have no clue that that happened because he just doesn't tell people. And I kind of I kind of feel like he might be better if he did, but, you know, that's that's his thing. He doesn't tell anybody about it, so. Yeah, and I don't think that there's anybody that thinks less of you, CK, for sharing your story. On the contrary, mm-hmm. I think you've I think you're starting to build a fan base because you are willing to be vulnerable and share. Definitely, and yeah, I agree. I ha- I I don't have the courage yet to do that, but maybe we'll get there in season two this fall. <laughs> well, Jeff. I really want to thank you for joining us today and, you know, CK's and still stuck in Idaho. Hopefully by the next episode, she'll be back in the land of better service and, and we'll be back to a good team. So Jeff, thanks for having me. We really want to thank you for, uh, for joining us today. Thank you for your valuable insight on organic Valley and the dairy industry. And, uh, hopefully we'll be following us up with, uh, with another dairy episode, maybe two in the near future. Okay. Sounds great. Well, thanks again, Jeff, and have a great day. Well, guys, I sure hope you enjoyed that episode with Jeff. We've got at least two more great dairy episodes coming up. Next week is my friend Lloyd Borntrager, the guy I was talking about that uh, I visited his farm. That's a really great episode. And then following that up is my new friend Dan Ventiker coming up on the 5th of July. And he is Iowa Dairy Farmer on TikTok. And if you're on TikTok, I encourage you to go check him out. He's very informative and very knowledgeable. And he's doing a great service to educate the, uh, let's just call them the vegans of the world, on the non-evils of the dairy industry. Coming up this Thursday is another bonus episode, this time with Carl Thiedemann and Seth Itzkin from the Soil for Climate group. They're going to talk about the work that they're doing on the legislative side of things with the government and trying to get some lobbyists on our side with regenerative agriculture. And we also dive into carbon economics and their work with the Maasai tribe in Africa. So that's a really cool bonus episode. Make sure you come back and check that out. Now that summer's here, it's awful hot. Make sure you stay hydrated. I'm going to try to keep giving you guys plenty of good content to listen to throughout the next several months. So be sure you come back. Check frequently for my bonus episodes on Thursday and our weekly episodes on Monday. Be sure to drop by the Facebook group, Ranching Reboot Paddock. Like us on Facebook, and if you could leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform, that'd be great. If we've influenced your operation or challenged your paradigms in any way, please share us with your friends and the rest of your network. I'm Red Hills Rancher, out.